Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active word of God, his two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, April 1st, we are studying Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. The fact is simple enough. Jesus dies on the cross. But the words of our Lord from his cross and all the events surrounding his death point us to the heart of the gospel. The Son of God gives his life as a ransom for us sinners. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Joel Heckman. Pastor Heckman serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you for having me on, Tim. As we get started, let's talk context. This is really a, a very climactic scene that we get here. What do we have leading up to it that's going to help us as we read today? So the context, uh, it's it's fairly extensive. I'm only going to go back to the start of chapter 15, but as many people probably know, um, coming up this Palm Sunday in the lectionary, the entire portion from chapter 14 all the way to the end of 15 is included in the gospel reading as an option. So you could go all the way back there, but I'll, I'll keep it a little bit more concise. Uh, going back to 15 verses 1 through 20 uh, leading up to this, uh, we see Jesus prior to the reading we're going to see today. He's just left on the cross and we're left to see kind of what's what's going on. So 15, one through five is where Jesus is facing the accusations of why should we kill this man? Why should we condemn him? And there are all, of course, baseless accusations, but what does Jesus do? Um, he doesn't say a thing. And that made me think of Isaiah 53, seven, describing Jesus as the lamb who goes silently to the slaughter, uh, that suffering servant song in Isaiah. Then move on to verses six through 15, this is where uh, we see one of the ultimate injustices to Jesus, where the crowd has the option, do you want to release a criminal or do you want to release Jesus, the purest, most innocent man of, of all time? And what happens? Uh, the criminal gets released and Jesus has to endure over and over again, this crowd saying, Barabbas, Barabbas. And then uh, his suffering seems just, it al it's almost on an upward trajectory where it gets more and more severe. Uh, 16 through 20, um, Jesus undergoes the shame of the mockery of the people where they give him a uh, purple robe, which is, of course, a royal color. Um, since they, they're kind of making fun, you claim to be king. So we're going to kind of, um, you know, poke fun at you and say, here's your robe, you know, you, uh, you fake king. Um, and then they actually kneel to him, which I thought was quite um, ironic, uh, painfully ironic, because um, they actually are bowing to a king. He does deserve that robe. He does deserve a crown, but he gets this crown of thorns. And um, instead of receiving the praise of all these people and the utmost adoration, he is... Uh, put down and mocked and beaten and spat on. Um, and really, you see this as, as kind of building up towards where we are today. Um, he's getting to really, you might say, the lowest point a human being ever reached um, 
in our place. Uh, this is you can kind of look at it and say, if I got what I deserve, this would all be happening to me. So just that profound suffering we see Jesus enduring for our sake, and then uh, finally you get to. Um, verses 21 through 32, um, and Jesus is nailed to the cross. And um, and we've talked about the insults he gets, but really, and we'll, I guess we'll focus on this a little bit more as we get into the text for today, uh, the people think that Jesus, in order to prove his kingship, there, of course, the insults are, you know, you're the king of the Jews. Why can't you save yourself? Come down from the cross and prove that you are who you say you are, uh, which is really the opposite of what Jesus needed to do to prove all this. Uh, he said he would die and rise in three days. So uh, exerting kingship and power don't come if Jesus comes down from the cross, they actually are seen uh, the glory and power and um, compassion of God are seen when Jesus stays on the cross. But the people, of course, don't get it at all. Their idea of kingship and glory and power are completely opposite of that. Um, and so we're left with, uh, uh, you know, kind of a sort of cliffhanger. Will Jesus overcome all of this stuff in three days, which we'll talk about in uh, you'll talk about in future shows, of course. Um, and then afterward, the little bit kind of the, um, oh, what's the word for the denouement, I think, the falling action after this. I think I got that right. Uh, shot in the dark. Um, but Joseph of Arimathea, it says a, this courageous guy who um, came and asked to take Jesus uh, off the cross and bury him. Um, I kind of think of it as if you were in, kind of imagining what the people's perspective was. This was kind of the nail in the coffin for who they were hoping Jesus was. Uh, some people wanted him to be um, the guy who restored uh, Israel to the splendor of the days of Solomon's temple, um, to destroy the Roman Empire, to establish a worldly kingdom. But uh, that's not what Jesus came to do, of course. Um, and he'll show us when he rises that he came to establish the reign of God, which is established through suffering and pain and death, and then uh, resurrection from the dead. So um, we've been talking, I think, through these shows about Mark um, kind of sandwiching events together to give heightened significance. And this is quite the sandwich. Um, Jesus is betrayed and then dies and then is buried and then rises from the dead. So um, I think I think that's... Uh, um, some good context to to get into. We could certainly do more in chapter 14 because this is one huge event um, during Holy Week, but um, I think that'll help us get set for today's text. Yeah, lots of lots of lead up to this. And again, it's amazing how much Mark has really slowed things down in his narrative here. And even in the verses that we've got today, we're going to talk about the events of just three hours in several verses, and even really focusing particularly on that one moment of Jesus' death and everything that surrounds it. Mark is telling us, even just in the pacing of his narrative, how important that these events that we're going to read about today really are. So with that, Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. 
And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. That's the text for today, Mark 15, verses 33 through 41. Pastor Hagman, the text begins, Mark gives us a time notice. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness into the whole land until the ninth hour. So sixth hour, that's noon. Ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. The reason he tells us about this time is because of what happened during that time. He says there was darkness over the whole land. What's the significance? So that's a good point where um, without some, you might say, divine supernatural intervention, this is, you know, the the... Um, the brightest point of the day when the sun would be getting towards its highest point in the sky. Uh, so what's the darkness coming from? Um, and it, you'd probably say it's, you, you might say it's dark clouds rolling in, uh, kind of a supernatural darkness. Uh, if you think about back to the plague of darkness in Egypt, um, that was, I think it was a thick darkness is how it's described. And it's sort of an unnatural thing where it's sent by God um, and the creation is doing uh, something that signifies um, what God is working in that particular situation. But um, I think it, it's just, you might even say it's creation reacting to the creator dying as profound as that is. And um, there's something terrible. There's something dark about this event. Um, and I know we, we see creation described as praising God. We see that in Psalm 148. So it might be here that creation is mourning God. Um, you know, something, the, the worst possible thing has happened. Uh, God has died. And we'll talk about that, of course, in a moment. Um, and it really, it kind of makes you think of a lot of images. Light and darkness is all throughout the scripture. You see all the way back at creation, there was um, darkness and chaos, and then God brings order to it when he brings light into creation. Um, and it says when Jesus, I believe it's John 1, he came into the world. Um, he shined in the darkness, and the darkness uh, did not overcome him or did not um, accept him. Um and uh, Jesus, when it says he's the light of the world, he himself says, you know, he who walks in darkness will never, or sorry, he who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here, when we see that darkness coming over the land, um, Jesus has been handed over to the forces of evil. Um, and I think the darkness signifies that, uh, the forces of evil are going to do their worst against Christ. Um, and not only did he handle that, he overcame it, but here the darkness gives us kind of that feeling of gravity of what is actually happening. All of creation is reacting to this, uh, which is really, uh, incredible to see. Um, I, I kind of wonder what it would have looked like how dark it would have been, how much could you see. But I think people probably got the sense that something 
something's going on here and it's not normal. Um, it's very unnatural and um, I'm sure plenty of people would realize it was evil. So with that, um, that kind of interplay between light and darkness, it's again, it's just incredible. The light of the world is nailed to the cross with darkness surrounding him, not just the physical darkness, but the darkness of sin hanging on his shoulders. Um, but then we see uh, Christ does this so that we would never uh, walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Um, and I love what Psalm 139 uh, says. That's one of the things I thought of as I um, was typing up some of these notes. It says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Um, so ultimately, there's the darkness surrounding Christ on the cross, the evil of this situation. But ultimately, the darkness couldn't overcome the Son of God, um, the light of the world. And he has trampled it underfoot. Um, and again, it's another thing you look at it. I should have endured this darkness. I should have been lost in my sin, and then Christ comes and endures the darkness of sin um, and gives the light of life and salvation. But I think at, at heart it's, it's signifying um, this is something very evil, very um, terrible, and um, we need to take note of just how dark it was for Christ to take our sins upon himself. Um, so really interesting imagery that we get from from Mark here. Yeah, the another thought that comes to mind is what Jesus just got done saying back in Mark chapter 13 where he was asked by his disciples about the destruction of the temple and then he started also talking about the day of his return and and he says in Mark 13 in those days after that tribulation the sun will be darkened. Mm -hmm. And and thinking through some of the imagery that you get in the Old Testament concerning the day of the Lord, this yeah. day of Yahweh in which he wreaks havoc upon his enemies and destroys his enemies, so often that, that day is said to be a day of darkness. And so mm -hmm. the the darkness here testifies, among other things, I, there really is so much I think that you can you can see in this imagery, but among other things that the day of the Lord has come. God's wrath is being poured out, but it's, and this is the wonderful thing that you keep pointing out. It's not being poured out on you. It's not being poured out on me. It's being poured out on Jesus there on the cross on the light of the world. And, and we know because of what he said that he will overcome even this darkness. I think it, it also heightens too some of the things we've been talking about previously in Mark, how you see throughout his passion, how he's more and more alone and how everyone and everything is arrayed against him. I mean, we, we talked about in yesterday's, show about how this whole battalion of Roman soldiers, 600 of them, is is mocking him. And you get all these, just the passers-by are mocking Jesus. And now even creation itself is, is dark, is mourning because of what is happening to Jesus. All of the evil, all of the, the wrath of God, it's all coming down on Jesus here on the cross. It's a really, it's a really powerful image. And mm -hmm. to know that he's doing it for you, that's, that's the joy. Yeah, absolutely. So with that then, we we're talking about Jesus being alone. At the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cries out with a loud voice, and Mark records it in Aramaic, and then he translates it for us, the Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and that means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are actually the only words of Jesus that Mark records for us. 
why why are these words so important? What does it mean that Jesus cries out to God, why have you forsaken me? There's a lot going on for sure. Um, maybe the best place to start is Psalm 22, which uh, I guess a week, we're, we're recording this a week before Maundy Thursday. So a week from now, uh, a lot of churches will be reading Psalm 22 at the very end of that service as the altar is stripped. Uh, which signifies um, the Lord Jesus was stripped of his life. He was, um, you know, stripped of of um, the presence of God, you might say, uh, for us. Of course, that important phrase, for us, Jesus went through all this. And, and incredibly, this would have been written, uh, if, if I think many people believe David wrote it, and it would have been about 900 years before Jesus spoke it on the cross. So that's amazing that all the way back, um, we know from eternity, the Lord had this in mind, but even 900 years prior, he was kind of giving his people this image of this is what my son will suffer for you. Um, And we really say when Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? You might say the father turns his back on Christ. Um, And this is not God showing disgust for Christ. Um, himself. It's showing his disgust for sin uh, and his absolute uh, condemnation of sin, which hangs on the sun. We call Jesus the sin bearer. Um, So it's as though uh, when we say, I believe it's 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And this is where we see Jesus being sin, you might say, so that we would become the righteousness of God. Um, And this is what we see really clearly. What is it what is the price? What is the penalty for sin? Um, it's God abandoning someone, but not us. It's his son. Um, this is really how um, you would define hell as being completely separated from God. Um, and that's why we say Jesus suffered that in our place. Um, I think I heard another person say that God was no longer intervening for the son on the cross. Um, kind of, it makes you think about when Israel was sent into exile after, you know, years and years of unfaithful kings, rejection of the prophets, um, calling them to repentance. Finally, the northern kingdoms um, defeated, the southern kingdoms defeated, they're exiled. Um, And that's kind of an image of, of maybe Jesus, if you want to picture it, Jesus is in exile right now where we ought to have been. Um, But this is so much more um, severe, really, uh, than anything Israel endured, um, because only Christ could endure it. So, um, really God, in order for us not to be abandoned, God had to abandon Christ, um, so that we would never know what it means like to be truly alone, to be truly cut off from God. Again, um, uh, a quote from um, Norman Nagel says, sin has to be answered for. Uh, there, there must be justice and the price must be paid, but the Lord does not give us the wages of sin, um, eternal death. He gives that to Christ um, in our place and Christ takes it and bears it. Um, and so it, it's it's really an amazing reversal where you see God turning his face away from Christ, forsaking Christ, and instead turning toward us when it should have been the complete opposite. Um, so if you if you gloss over this, um, 
I think it's stricken, smitten, and afflicted that uh, Lent in him. I think it's a Holy Week hymn. Um, ye who, I think it's ye who consider sin but lightly or take sin but lightly. Um, I don't remember what the exact line is, but it says, kind of take a look at what's going on here. Um, and then you'll see just what the depth of your sin is, seeing what Jesus went through to take it away from you. Um so it's really, it's a profound suffering that we'll never understand truly. And and thanks be to God that we'll never understand it, because if we did, that would mean uh, we were eternally condemned. But Christ, um, it's it, I, it just, it's so hard to wrap your mind around it. What is it like to never, or like to, to not be in the presence of God, to be completely cut off and, um, you know, even even just one moment of that would be complete agony, but Jesus is enduring it for all people. So Yeah, yeah. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, the way that it it, it says it, you know, mark the sacrifice appointed. Mm-hmm. See who bears the awful load. Look at look at the one who's carrying this load. And the the hymn concludes, Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of Man and Son of God. That's the one who bears it. And it, mm-hmm. it is a, a fantastic mystery that the father abandons the son, which is just mind boggling to even think about, but it is, I mean, this is such a, a wonderful moment for you and for me, because as you said, this means that God does not abandon us. He abandoned Jesus so that he, he doesn't abandon us. And yeah, I mean, I'm thinking through the old Testament, some of the places where well, think about how, how often the Psalms teach us to pray that the Lord's face would shine upon us or even in the the ironic benediction that we'll often use in our church services, we ask the Lord would make his face or his countenance shine upon us, that the Lord would look at us is a, is a wonderful thing here. Here. It's not just that the father is not looking at Jesus, but has actually left him mm-hmm. or, or even in the, I think it's in Ezekiel where the Lord leaves his temple and how, yep. how a horrific thing that is to imagine the Lord leaving his temple. Well, again, what is Jesus experiencing here? Even even more profoundly than that, God actually abandons him. And as you said, this is the moment that Jesus suffers hell. We'll, we'll mm-hmm. often talk about this when we're when we're talking about the creed and the descent into hell. That's mm-hmm. not Jesus suffering hell. This no. is the moment that mm-hmm. Jesus suffers hell. The other thing that, that stands out to me here, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. I've got a couple, but Mark does record these words for us in Aramaic, which is not the only time that he records for us words in Aramaic. And, and as I've been thinking through this in the Gospel of Mark, the other places that, that he does record Aramaic words are in the raising of Jairus's daughter, back in chapter 5, Talitha Kumi, little girl, get up. <laughs> and then he says to the, the man who's deaf and mute, Ephaphtha, you know, be opened. Mm-hmm. And then here you get the words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And, and I'm not sure if Mark intends this or not, but, but the connection that I, I want to draw is that in both of those other cases, you have what you might call performative words. When Jesus <laughs> says something, it happens. Yeah. And, and I wonder if Mark wants us to draw, and the Holy Spirit wants us to draw this connection to these words of Jesus as well, that when he says these words, something's happening. And the something is that God's abandoning Jesus so that he won't abandon you. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, actually, I, I, rem- I remember listening um, as I was prepping for this. There's another um, show on KFU. I went back to the archives like six years ago to listen to some stuff on this. 
And they were actually talking about why wasn't it in Hebrew. Um, I guess Hebrew is considered kind of the common tongue, um, the the street vocabulary that would have maybe, I don't know if they used the word cheapened it, uh, but it wouldn't have called the kind of significance that um, needed to be called to this particular thing. Um, and I don't, yeah, I, it's, I, I guess I don't know what the exact significance of it is, but um, usually when you have something that isolated in a narrative or that rare, I think it's kind of calling special attention to it. And especially thinking about performative speech, um, that's a huge thing where uh, I think a lot of people these days think if I say it, 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 it makes it true or something. Um, but with Christ, it, it truly does happen. You know, if he proclaims your sins are forgiven, they are forgiven. Um, you know, when he says, uh, why have you forsaken me? It's saying God really is abandoning me and he's doing this instead of you. Um, so I, yeah, that's a great question. I don't know what, what the heightened significance is there, but I, I think it's something, if you looked into it a little bit more, you'd probably find, um, this is, this is a specific rhetorical tool that Mark is using to draw attention to what Jesus is doing here in a a very powerful way. De- definitely. I mean, anytime you get those actual words that Jesus says mm-hmm. in the language in which he spoke them, I think, you know, pay attention. This is an important moment. The other, mm-hmm. the other thought that I had, and you can tell me what you think of this too, is that in both of those cases, Jesus says to someone who's dead, get up. And he mm-hmm. says to ears that don't work, open up. And, mm-hmm. and in both those cases, those are not words that you would have expect to be heard, but they were. And I, I wonder, again, and this is maybe a bit of speculation, and so take it with a grain of salt, but I'm just trying to think through this. You know, there's maybe then a moment of a bit of hope in these words as well, that even as Jesus is abandoned by God at this moment, experiencing the full depth of hell, yet he still cries out to his his father as his God with the full trust that's there in Psalm 22. As you said, many churches use this on Monday, Thursday. We're recording a week before. It's actually going to air on Monday, Thursday itself. Oh, neat. So, so, I mean, when you hear those words on Monday, Thursday, and you get to the end of that psalm, there is hope of resurrection at the end of that psalm. Mm-hmm. And, and I, again, and then this is a bit of speculation. I don't know if this is why Mark recorded this way, the way the Holy Spirit moved him to write it. But I, I, I wonder if there's a connection there. Yeah, I, I'd say there is. Um, and even if you look at, um, I think Psalm 22 and Psalm 31 are listed as the Psalms for Good Friday. So if you look at Psalm 31, that has the words, into your hands I commit my spirit. So it's this tension I think you see Jesus in where um, he is being abandoned by the Father, but he's, he... It, I, th- I can't remember who pointed this out. It's not despair that we see Jesus in on the cross because despair is losing all hope. Right. Um, and Jesus did not lose all hope because he trusted in his father. And he's been saying leading up to this, I will be handed over. I'll be betrayed into the hands of, of all these people. But then on the third day, I will rise from the dead. Um, so I, I would imagine this is one of the things that Mark is emphasizing. Like, look at the context of Psalm 22. It's not completely hopeless. Um, And it's kind of showing maybe a couple things. First of all, Jesus wasn't hopeless, um, and God did indeed deliver him. Uh, But also, uh, the Lord never abandons his people. Um, We might think things are completely dark and there's no way through, but the Lord... um, 
does not abandon his people. Um, and if we commend, you know, if we, if we say into your hands, I commend my spirit, I think there's another verse in that Psalm, my times are in your hands. Oh Lord, um, that's what happened to Christ uh, will happen to us. Maybe we'll suffer similarly, but the Lord vindicates and preserves those who suffer um, for his namesake. Uh, that's one of the, the powerful, enduring messages of the, the cross and the resurrection is God vindicated Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, he did not abandon him to Sheol, um, as some of the psalmists use that phrase, don't abandon me. Uh, in death, I can't praise you. Um, and we see God making good on that promise. Um, you will not let your Holy One see decay in Christ. So I, I would imagine Mark is trying to give you a bigger picture here with that psalm. Again, like you said, we can't maybe nail that down yeah. with certainty, but I mean, the, these writers of the scripture, that's one of the things I love about the Gospels is they give you um, these four different uh, vantage points of the Gospel, and they, they don't point out the exact same things, which is kind of neat. It's like they all have different emphases giving us the same basic event, but it's like what are they pointing out when Mark says this and maybe John doesn't say it or something. So Yeah. So so even even a bit of hope, even in the midst of Jesus' abandonment, because he is abandoned for you, for me, there on the cross, so that we will not be abandoned. We're talking to Pastor Joel Heckman today about Mark chapter fifteen. We're gonna take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, April 1st. We're studying Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41 with Pastor Joel Heckman. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, prior to the break, we were talking about Jesus' abandonment on the cross by the Father, abandoned so that we would not be. The text continues, apparently some of those who were standing there, they heard what Jesus said in Aramaic, and Eloi sounds a lot like Elijah, and they think he's calling Elijah, and then they offer him some sour wine to drink and say, let's see if this Elijah comes. Why Elijah and why the sour wine? Yeah, so just a couple points about these verses. Elijah would have been one of the most significant prophets in you know, Israelite and, and Jewish history. Um, and it, interestingly, when they, I think when Jews, Orthodox Jews, celebrate the Passover, they left, they would leave a seat open at the family table for Elijah, um, anticipating, uh, as you say, Elijah who is to come, the Messiah who was promised um, to come. And so this is part of the mockery of the cross where um, this association with Elijah, it's almost like they're saying, if Elijah has come, you know, and, and you're the one to whom he was pointing, why can't you do what we think a Messiah ought to be able to do? Why aren't you saving yourself? Um, come down from the cross and 
we don't really think you're the Messiah, so maybe the the real Elijah will come and get you down from where you are. It's it's all kind of tied into that mockery of we don't believe you are who you say you are, um, which again gets back to that vindication of the resurrection. That's God proving Jesus is who he says he is. Um, and then the sour wine, interestingly, if you look at um, some references in the other Gospels, this would have been the third, I believe, the third time that Jesus was offered wine. Um, he he got some, uh, there was, I think, some wine mixed with gall that was offered him, which would have been, uh, I believe, a, kind of a painkiller um, to take away the pain. So um, the idea is Jesus did not want you know, any alleviation of the suffering he, he went through for us. And then, um, Luke 23, 36, they kind of offer him wine and mockery, but then the sour wine comes. And I, I believe when we look at John 19, 28, we kind of put that in, um, uh, parallel with this, uh, Jesus requested it saying, I thirst. Uh, so he requested that wine. And really, I, th- I think a point you can make from this and, um, I think scholars go back and forth on how to interpret the actual Greek, but uh, some of the texts say Jesus, when he had, um, when he knew that all was finished, said, in order to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. Um, but I think if you look at it a little more closely, Jesus, you might say, Jesus, knowing that all was finished in order to fulfill the scriptures, said in response to all this, I thirst. And I, I my approach is he wanted the wine to be able to say what he said next, which was, it is finished. Um, so he doesn't get the wine to, you know, it, it might be partially fulfilling the scriptures. I don't think the grammar sets it up that way. Um, I think it's kind of showing Jesus, whose breaths away from deaths, in, in just the, the, the weight of all sin is upon him. And what does he do with the wine? He wants to drink it to clear his throat and yell out for everyone to hear it is finished um, and accomplish your salvation when he breathes his last. So um, probably plenty more we could go into with that, but I think those are just a couple of points to bring away that add not only to the mockery that Jesus was enduring and maybe some of the thought behind that, but also uh, why did he want that wine? I think it was to proclaim it is finished, you know, for you again. <laughs> mm. The moment of Jesus' death is recorded in verse 37. Mark says it this way. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. It's it's almost anticlimactic there the way Mark phrases it. He just simply reports the fact as it happened. But this is the moment. Jesus was crucified and died. Why is this such a significant moment? Why is this the moment Christ crucified that we preach? Yeah, and you might maybe sum it up with one phrase, God died. Mm. Um, And it's so hard. Again, one of the other things about this whole thing to wrap your mind around, um, you know, this really is when you get down to what was the purpose of the incarnation, what was the purpose of Christ coming in human flesh? It was so that he, God could die. Uh, without the incarnation, God cannot die um, perfectly in our place. This is where we really emphasize Jesus is true God, true man, fully God, fully man. Um, without, the, you know, his divine nature, he cannot live the sinless life. He's not the perfect sacrifice, but without that human nature, he can't be a sacrifice in the first place. 
but it, it's a, just so incredible when you think the the Lord of the universe. I mean, we we have trouble as it is fathoming just the, you know the nature of God, even with His revelation to us, like you know, all powerful, all knowing, um, all gracious, all loving, just. This God comes to us, takes on our flesh, and undergoes death. And not just death. And I know, um, I think uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller likes to point out the, you know, the three aspects of Jesus' suffering. It's, um, there's there's the, the mockery and the shame of the cross. Uh, there's the physical suffering, and, and which leads to that death. But this is combined with that death again um god uh turning his back on the son god the father turning his back on the son so that coupled with god dies um this is you know this is the price for sin um without without this there's there's no vicarious atonement for us um uh there's a church father uh, named, I think, Gregory of Nazianzus, and, and when he was defending the full divinity and humanity of Christ, he had this phrase, what is not assumed is not redeemed. Um, and we see with the incarnation here, um, Jesus assuming our human nature, he dies, uh, and then he re- thus redeems us. So, um, and, and you think about it, um, I mean, I again another unfathomable thing. This is the sin of all time. Every single sin hangs on his shoulder. Billions and people, billions of sins. We talk about Jesus drinking the cup of wrath um, against sin. Uh, it was full. Um, there was, you know, it was to the brim, um, and Jesus suffered it all. And and the incredible thing is i don't know i haven't looked into the significance of the six hours but um you know people hang on people hung on crosses i think sometimes far longer usually far longer than that um jesus it only took six hours to die on the cross and i think that's the combination not only of the physical suffering but also the weight of sin hanging upon him even the god man christ uh, died in six hours with the weight of sin on him Mm -hmm. um so and i I know you had mentioned um some other hymn verses that um put this in a bit the words are a bit different we sing them um but maybe we kind of gloss over just how um how powerful it is and how devastating is too that god died um I don't know if you can recall recall those off the top well, of your head. Sure. I mean, this is one of those you, you've you've been talking about the incarnation and around Christmas time we we wonder, we marvel at the reality that God has been born in our human flesh for us. And, and that's just a, a wondrous mystery to think that God has been born, that God has a mom. Well, here uh, on the other side of Jesus' life, here God dies, which is just a a wonderful mystery again. And you're right. It shows up in several of our hymns. The one that I I think really stands out to me in Lutheran service book, it's number 448. It's called O Darkest Woe. And stanza two starts this way. O sorrow dread, our God is dead. I mean, it's just so like, wow, God died. Or or in, in the hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, which is 437 in Lutheran service book in the third stanza, Isaac Watts says that God, the mighty maker died for his own creature's sin, or or Paul Gerhardt in A Lamb Goes Uncomplaining Forth, that's number 438 in Lutheran Service Book in the end of the third stanza. 
Paul Gerhardt writes, Oh, love, how strong you are to save. You lay the one into the grave who built the earth's foundation. The one who, who created everything now dies for his creation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's so powerful. It, and it's so mysterious. What, who would have ever conceived of a God who dies? It, that just yeah. doesn't make sense to us. Mm-hmm. And yet that's what God does for our salvation. And that's, you know, and, and the way you're talking about, this is the, this is sin and evil. All of that weight comes down upon Jesus so that he dies. Even the, the strong man, right? The, that's the way Jesus <laughs> talks about himself. The stronger man, that, that sin, he, he dies because of it. And yet he does so. And, and I think this is important too. And the way Mark words it, you know, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathes his last. This is Jesus giving his life. He's, mm-hmm. he's not doing this unwillingly. He's doing it willingly and gladly. And, it, and it's all summed up in that wonderful phrase that, that God died. And as you said, if it's not God that died, if it's only a man who died, well, then, then that doesn't help us. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be able to, to confess and to say it boldly that, yes, God died for us on the cross. He did that for you and for me. It's a wonderful mystery, but it is, it is wonderful because this means our salvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and maybe I, I think we're going to get into this too with, um, uh, the curtain being torn from top to bottom. Sure. Uh, sure. Yeah. The- Take us into some of these. I mean, we've been saying this is an important moment. Well, the, mm-hmm. the actual events surrounding it testify to that. So take us into the curtain being torn. Sure. So I actually just preached, uh, we had the text from Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, and I preached on this last week, uh, focusing on uh, w- what does it mean that Christ is our great high priest? Um, so that the curtain of the temple, um, we see it from ancient sources. This was would have been, I, I think, between three and six inches thick. I think there's some um, speculation there, but it would have been about 30 feet wide, 60 feet tall. So this massive imposing curtain. The front of of the nave in our church at St. John's is about 32, 33 feet wide. Uh, So I kind of pointed people to imagine the entire front of our church and then our ceiling is only about 30 feet tall at the apex. So, you know, twice as tall as this massive ceiling. Um, This was uh, the curtain in the temple, the Israelite temple that separated um, the people of God from this place called the Holy of Holies. Um, that's where the Ark of the Covenant rested. This is where God was, had, uh, you might say, a, a special intensified presence where we'd say, of course, God is present everywhere, but he said he promised to be here with his people in a special way um, for a particular purpose. And that was um, on, you know, one of the reasons that he was there is on the Day of Atonement, Someone could go behind this massive curtain. Um, only the high priest could do that and sprinkle um, blood of sacrificed animals on the mercy seat um, in the Holy of Holies. So God sees this blood of the sacrifice and he remembers, um, I'm going to redeem my people from their sin. Um, and that was the atonement for the people. Um, that promise of God is what um, really was their salvation in this atonement really pointed to the ultimate full atonement of Christ on the cross, that sacrifice where Christ was himself. So uh, looking at the curtain, it, it, it had a couple of purposes. First, um, make sure that the holiness of God um, remains where it is so it wouldn't kill the people and, you know, kind of get out of that place. But, uh, but I think another reason it would have been representing the sin that cut people off from God, from his presence. But then 
the high priest is the one who goes behind, makes atonement, and gives the people the connection they couldn't have without that. And that's exactly the way Christ is. Um, the curtain being torn here, the moment it torn too, um, that's when our separation from God ended. Um, it was essentially saying Christ is the atoning sacrifice. He is the proper, um, perfect sacrifice, sufficient for our salvation. And because of him, sin no longer separates us from God. Nothing separates us from God because Christ um, is our access to God as our high priest. So I like to, I, I kind of said in the sermon on Sunday, um, how do, when God looks at us, what does he see? He does not see our sins covering us. He sees Christ and his righteousness covering us as our high priest. Um, and one little point I think a, a pastor made um, the, the tearing of the temple curtain from top to bottom, why did they include that detail? Why didn't they just say the curtain tore in two? Um, this might, again, be, we were talking a little bit more earlier about, um, this might be speculation, but uh, the, the idea is top to bottom is God coming down to us. God working this salvation is completely, uh, he is completely the source. We have no say in it. We don't go up to God. We don't climb the ladder to earn our salvation because we can't. So God comes down to us in Christ to save us with his own power. I mean, the, again, there's so much more you could say about that, but um, the imagery of this temple curtain, if you really flesh that out and look at the context of the Old Testament in light of that, um, it's a really powerful thing that happens. Mm-hmm. The other event that Mark records upon the death of Jesus is the confession of the centurion. One of the soldiers standing there sees how Jesus dies and he says, mm-hmm. truly this man was the son of God. We've we've referenced this moment throughout our study of Mark because this is what Mark has been building toward. And, and here it is. Why mm-hmm. is this confession of faith and the moment that occasions it, why is this such an important moment? So this was a guy Uh, When he utters that, he's actually risking quite a bit. Um, The reason Jesus is is condemned and executed is because he claims equality with God. That was the treason and blasphemy they wanted him to die for. So when the the centurion makes this confession of faith, he's essentially saying what Jesus said was true. Um, Surely this was the Son of God. He's saying not only was Christ equal with God, but he was also superior to Caesar. Um, and that would have been, uh, you know, really blasphemous. Um, and he knew, I mean, you, you think I, I kind of had this thought, if anyone knew that it was a good time to keep his mouth shut, it would have been the centurion because he could have suffered. Ex- he's looking up at this guy and, and he, he must've known, you know, with, he was part of a torture detachment. He was the one who professionally crucified people. He had to know if I say this, I might be in the same position that this guy I'm saying it about is. Um, but we see, I, I, I think this is the, one of the best explanations we can give is why did the soldier say this? What's the significance of it happening now? Well, he is face to face with the word made flesh with the divine word. And what is God used to create faith, it's it's his word. Um, and I believe God is creating faith through Christ, his word here. Um, and the, I think there's a little bit more kind of, if you look at the whole context of Mark, there's some significance to that phrase, the son of God too. Um, what's the first thing that Mark tells us in Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, 
Um, and, uh, this phrase is not used, um, again until, uh, the centurion says it here. So everything sandwiched in between is to show a couple things. First, Jesus is fully man with all that happens to him, but also that he is the son of God. Um, this confession of faith is kind of everything that's happened in between Jesus healing people, Jesus forgiving sins, Jesus with power over nature, Jesus raising people from the dead. It's meant to emphasize this really is the son of God. And that kind of culminates in the, the sacrifice that Jesus is undergoing here. Um, that is kind of the, the height of him proving that he is God's son um, going on our behalf. And I, I love to say it, this is where we see God's glory and delight to save sinners. Um, it's God's glory to be hoisted on a cross, um, as as we see in John 12, to, to be lifted up. I think um, Dr. Gibbs at, at seminary uh, used this phrase once, Jesus' enthronement on the cross. Um, and it's, again, the total opposite of what you'd expect with a deity, um, with someone who claims to be the king of the Jews, the king of all people, the king of the universe. This is how you're going to prove it. And yep, that's God. Uh, this is exactly the way it needed to happen. Um, and that confession, I think, is meant to emphasize that Jesus really is the Son of God, um, come not only to bear our sin, but to pay for it and pay that ransom for our sin so that we would have eternal life. Right. As, as he said back in Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here he does mm-hmm. it. And and what's amazing is is how much the, the centurion stands in contrast with those who are mocking him, particularly the chief priests and the scribes who, who said to Jesus, you know, come down and we'll see and believe. Jesus, of course, doesn't. Here he stays He stays on the cross, and the centurion sees that, and he believes. That's what Jesus wants. He wants you yeah. to believe in him because he stays on the cross as the ransom for your sins. Pastor Hagen, we got about five minutes here. Uh, let's talk a little bit about these women that Mark mentions at the end. Just give us a, a few thoughts on the women before we wrap things up. Yeah, so these are the faithful women who had been following Jesus. Uh, the the men, as Jesus referenced in Matthew twenty six thirty one, he said the sheep will be scattered uh, when the shepherd is struck. Um, so the women uh, weren't scattered; they remained close to Jesus. Um, there probably wasn't as much of a threat that they would have been captured and tortured. Um, it was traditional for Jewish women to mourn in this manner at the execution. Uh, but these women were faithful in following Jesus for three years. Um, it says they were, um, they followed him and ministered to him. So what that involved, we're not entirely sure. Maybe it meant um, making sure Jesus was fed, keeping his garments mended, um, doing all these acts of service, which you would, it doesn't get much laud. It doesn't get much um, mention. And certainly today in our world, it probably wouldn't either because, you know, you're not receiving a living wage for that. Um, You're not doing something that's spectacular in the eyes of the world. But I think this is recorded not only to emphasize the faithfulness of these women, um, which uh, emphasizing that would not have been – if you were trying to make up this story, uh, if this were a hoax, you would not have called out women because they were, didn't have very high status. Mm-hmm. But this is, I think, Mark making the point that uh, these women stayed with Jesus even to the point of death, and they ministered faithfully to him. Um, and that's really an, uh, it, it's 
everything you do faithfully on God's behalf is important, especially these women who were taking care of the physical needs of Jesus um, for three whole years. They they were hurt by this, and um, we see that hurt here as they're gathered around the cross seeing this man die. But of course, these women will be comforted too. Um, this man they followed around for three years isn't a fraud. He is who he says he is in that resurrection. Um, you know, maybe, maybe their joy was was just a little bit deeper because they were in that position of service. Um, they rejoice that this man, who they helped so much, um, really is the Son of God. So, um, not not a small point that Mark mentions these women here. Certainly, and and they proved to be witnesses of the actual resurrection, yeah. as we'll as we'll see the burial in tomorrow's text, and then the resurrection on the third day in Mark sixteen. Pastor, we have about two and a half minutes here. Uh, help us to wrap things up this morning. Such a rich text. Our Lord's death for us. Give us mm-hmm. the good news. So I, I think the last thought I had when I was closing this up was the word mercy. Uh, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is uh, getting something you don't deserve. Um, and you might ask, where is the mercy in God letting his son die? Um, some people will say this is divine child abuse, which is absurd. Um, this is the father and the son united in their will to save humanity from sin's curse. Um, This is not God the Father doing something cruel. This is Christ going willingly to the cross so that we don't get what we deserve. He gets what we deserve. Um, And so really it's, it's, it's on full display, God in Christ taking into himself the suffering for sin, paying a debt that we could not pay, um, getting rid of sin's curse when we could not get rid of it ourselves. And um, this is, Again, this is what God had planned before time began from all eternity. He was going to do this. So everything uh, in history has been building up to this point. This is um, the, the, this, this combined with Easter Sunday, of course. This is the pivot point in all of history. Leads up to this. It, everything points forward and back to it. This is our identity. Um, this is where we say, how do I know God loves me? Um, look at Christ on the cross. There is absolutely no doubt when you see that there. How do I know God keeps his promises? How do I know God takes away sin's curse from me and gives me life? It's this this moment right here when Jesus breathes his last and gives his life for us. And then we're connected to that. We're bene- we benefit from it by the gift of faith in Christ. So um, just I, I, there's so much more we could say, but I, I hope that sums it up um sums it up fairly well such wonderful news god died for you pastor joel heckman is the pastor at saint john's lutheran church in okarchi oklahoma helping us this morning with mark 15 verses 33 through 41 pastor heckman thanks for being our guest today yeah thanks tim it was an honor i appreciate it I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark 15 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.